Hi, I'm Dr. Steve Elias, and welcome to The Vein Podcast. Respect the elders, embrace the new, and encourage the improbable and impractical without bias. Uh, welcome to the uh, next Vein Podcast. Uh, this Vein Podcast, we're having people, which I've already been told before we started recording, actually still use stethoscopes. So these are... Uh, all, everyone here is master of medicine. The title of this, uh, yeah, Tom is showing us one too. The, the theme of this is uh, the vein specialist really needs a vascular medicine friend. And with us are four uh, very well-known uh, vascular medicine specialists who also deal with, with vein disease. Uh, when I say your name, kind of raise your hand a little bit. Uh, we have Tom uh, Rook from the Mayo Clinic. Suman Wasan from University of North Carolina now, uh, Yogan Kanthi from University of Michigan, and uh, Raghu Kalori from Ohio Health. And all of them have participated with many of the vein meetings. They speak a lot about this. But I want to take a step back here and, and, and ask you guys, uh, let's, let's start with uh, Suman. Suman, give me the, the lay person. Try and explain to a lay person what a vascular medicine specialist is. Not from the vein world, but just in general. Well, um, it's, an, it's a good question because I just actually went up to the UNC and tried to tell them what a vascular medicine specialist is. Right, so a very timely question. So, so, you know, I would say the vascular medicine specialist is one who uh, sees patients with diseases of the blood vessels and uh, as opposed to a hematologist, which is the distinction I've been making of late, who sees diseases of the blood. So anything to do with a blood vessel, medical disease, imaging, that is what a vascular medicine specialist does. So exclusive of the heart, we're the plumbers, and we're the ones who take care of the diseases of the blood vessels. That's what I would say in a nutshell. Steve, uh, if I could toss something in there, I would... Uh, I would just point out that, um, you, you know, we have all of these surgical specialties that everybody's so very familiar with. Um, we, we've And we've got medical counterparts for all of them. For general surgery, there's general internists. For cardiac surgeons, there's cardiologists. I think of the vascular medicine specialist in many ways as sort of being the medical uh, counterpart for the vascular surgeons. It's, an, it's a way I often explain when I'm talking to lay folks or to other physicians that, that really don't understand what I do. We do for vascular surgery um, what what other specialties do for their surgical counterparts. All right, and that's... just to follow up on that, that's a great point, Tom, that as is cardiothoracic surgery is to cardiology and urology and nephrology, vascular surgery Perfect. is to vascular medicine. So I think that is, is a great way to uh, say that. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. I mean, that's I can conceptualize that as as well. I mean, back in the old old days, I would say to people, uh, the one good thing about being a vein specialist is you don't have anybody competing with you. There is no medical counterpart. But then you guys came along, you know. But we're talking twenty five <laughs> years ago, so so that's good. No, we need you. We need you as a friend. That's why I have you here. You're your friend, Yogan. Anything else to, to add to that? Well, I, I would echo Tom and someone's thoughts. You know, I think of it as uh, as when your kids take the SATs and they have to study analogies, vascular surgery is to vascular medicine in the same way that cardiac surgery is to cardiology. 
Um, and it allows really a, a very good partnership between uh, these two specialties that allows us to really provide much more comprehensive care to patients. Um, and, uh, and the partnership is something that probably goes on for the life of the patient. Um, yeah. So instead of them having one provider, they probably have a couple of them that, that can manage their diseases in the long term. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So now, Raghu, g- give me a sense of um, what type of training. What, what are the various, is there only one pathway to becoming a vascular medicine specialist, or are there, there a few? So um, there are a few pathways. Uh, uh, Steve, thanks for arranging this. <clears throat> um, the, the, the type of pathways uh, that I think of mainly, uh, as I was describing to uh, one of my surgical colleagues um, with an SVM is, um, one is internal medicine pathway where you could do internal medicine and then do vascular medicine fellowship. Um, and then um, uh, the other main option uh, is to do cardiology and then do vascular medicine. Um, so you, you got two of each of us on this call here, Yogan and Tom, our cardiology vascular medicine uh, specialty route, and uh, Suman and I are internal medicine vascular medicine route. Um, so it, it, there are few exceptions, um, but largely those two are the pathways. All right. So so it's not as if you need to do something before, and there are fellowships in vascular medicine. It's not yes. as if yeah. you can you can get on a vascular medicine path from from medical school, per se. Is this no. Correct? Yeah, you have. It's a fellowship program. Yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's. And, and, Okay. And and we cele- we celebrated our thirtieth uh, you know SVM annual sessions last year. Um, so we're just about as old as AVF is, uh, maybe a year or two behind, but um, about the same age. Uh, and in terms of uh, the specialty as such, Tom would probably have a better historical purpose <laughs> uh, perspective than I do because he's, as you can see from his hair, he is slightly more mature than I am. Um, <laughs> But uh, at least in the Cleveland Clinic, vascular medicine has been existent since the mid-1960s. You know, we we laugh about this at Mayo because uh, we hired our first vascular medicine physician in the 1920s. He was one of the first six internists that that was hired at the Mayo Clinic. We hired him two years before we hired our first... uh, person who specialized in cardiology. So we laugh at the other cardiologists that we're actually the <laughs> oldest branch of, uh, uh, of the cardiovascular medical tree here. All right, now let, let me ask you that in the vascular medicine world then, what percentage of people, I know Suman and, and you all said you treat diseases of the blood vessel. Do, does everyone in vascular medicine treat diseases in a medical side and in a procedural side? Or are there some vascular medicine specialists who are really non-proceduralists and some who are proceduralists? And if you give me a sense of that, then what percentage would you say are proceduralists and what are really just non-proceduralists? Let's start with, uh, yeah, Raghu, since your mouth is already moving, go. Just, just uh, from, uh, from the society standpoint, uh, SVM, um, approximately 50% are actually interventionalists, um, interventionalists, uh, um, and who, who have cardiology and interventional cardiology training too. 
Um, and um, there are some of us, uh, like Suman and I, who do superficial venous interventions, okay? And the rest are basically um, um, non-proceduralists, um, like Yogan is. I believe uh, uh, Tom uh, does chlorotherapy. Um, are you still doing that, Tom? Or I gave that uh, I gave know. that up, but I did do in my career like about eighteen thousand patients. Yeah. So, yeah, some some ridiculous number. He yeah, I I, I thought twenty thousand, but yeah, yeah I, as, as I'd have to see, recount yeah. them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> might be twenty thousand by now. I stopped counting at eighteen. Yeah. So so, okay. so we so we we have people who uh, are preventive internists, if you would, pre, uh, so who do preventive care and you know atherosclerosis. We have uh, uh, cardiologists who do that, you know, uh, who are trialists and do preventive PAD right guidelines and those type of things. And then you know we have venous specialists like us here. Um, Yogan, for example, does basic science, uh, which is a big deal, which is a big part at uh, University of Michigan, both in vascular medicine and vascular surgery, as you know. Um, uh, and uh, um, the rest, you know, some of us uh, do uh, wound work too. All right, Suman, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think I think the core training is internal medicine. In fact, uh, over the years, as we've uh, developed the specialty, we've wrestled with who is eligible to complete vascular medicine fellowship training. And the commonality, as Raghu has expressed, is internal medicine board certification. Now, there are a few exceptions uh, in training at the Cleveland Clinic, et cetera, but core training is internal medicine. And then you can come in after cardiovascular or actually other subspecialties. For example, uh, we're getting ready to take a hematology fellow who has done two years and wants to do her third year uh, here at UNC uh, through a fellowship grant, uh, who's going to spend a year with me and Stefan Mull doing uh, vascular medicine. So the core training is internal medicine. Some go on to do procedures through cardiology. As Ravi said, he and I do superficial vein procedures, uh, but internal medicine training is sort of the basic to get into vascular medicine. All right. Um, all right, good. Now, let, let me just ask you a little bit, if you can, don't worry, we're not going to hold you to this, but when you guys sit around and talk, talk amongst yourselves, you say to yourself, I just wish those vein specialists or vascular surgeons would, whatever, would realize how much we can help you, would, would stop trying to be a vascular medicine, would give, give me what, what, what would you want from a vein specialist or a vascular surgeon that that either that we should be doing or that we should stop doing from a vascular medicine viewpoint? This is a tough one. So I'll give it to Yogan. <laughs> I was worried about that after I, I should have spoken up earlier. Maybe I would be out of the rotation. But, no, but I think, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, so Steve, I, I um, you know, full disclosure, when I was uh, in medical school and looking at residencies, um, I had uh, I had to choose between two things, and one was either being a vascular surgeon or being a vascular medicine doc. So I think these two are so closely aligned with one another um, that when a vein specialist is doing work, that that you know I, I just want them to call, and then pick up, feel free to call us and ask how we can help. 
Um, sometimes it's not just managing um, managing the, the the veins itself, but perhaps there are other metabolic diseases or other risk factors that need to be managed for the patient that have longitudinal implications. And so uh, we're happy to we're happy to do those things. I think that that's where the synergy really uh, really gets exciting. Yeah. All right. So Raghu, do you have is there competition at your place, or how have you you decreased the competition between vascular vein specialists or, or vascular surgeons who do vein procedures versus you guys who deal with the, the superficial vein? Are they? So within, within Ohio Health, we are salaried physicians, uh, uh, Steve. So uh, we just, you know, do whatever we do best. So if I have a, a, a large varicosity that I think it would be best served by excisions in the OR with better control and that kind of stuff. I just send those patients to my vascular surgery colleagues who might do an RFA or a laser and then, you know, take out the large varices in the OR. And they will send me patients for, you know, perforators, subulcer, foam sclerotherapy and that kind of stuff. And that's within Ohio Health. Now, outside of Ohio Health, within you know Central Ohio, where our practice is, there are a lot of vein centers, uh, and it's a different type of referral pattern, as you can imagine. Uh, you know that most of my patients um, are C4 through C6s, uh, because like you, our vein center is located within the wound center. Um, so we dif- we differentiate ourselves by you know, taking care of the far end of the venous insufficiency spectrum. You know, my procedures you've seen, uh, you know, most of mine are complicated like yours. Uh, so that's how we differentiate. But, you know, when, when we talk about, you know, the and, and there are um, uh, venous specialists in the community who send their patients, you know, occasionally to me when the anatomy is complex. So that happens too as a resource, but then, you know, for these overlap syndromes, uh, lymphedema, lipedema, you know, um, uh, uh, the metabolic overlap within the uh, leg ulcers, you you know, the differential diagnosis of uh, things that look like venous ulcers and, you know, the... um, uh, role of central venous, hyper, venous uh, hypertension elevation, you know, sleep apnea management, you know, all of those type of things that are um, that the veins are connected to. You know, I think you know we we um, can help with those type of things. Yeah. Now, no, I mean, I think that's that's a great way of looking at it. Suman University of North Carolina. You guys are uh, also have a lot of vascular people around and vein people around. Um, is it more of a cooperative nature or uh, within the university versus outside the university? Give me, give me a sense of that. And yeah, yeah, it's it's been really very interesting for me as I've made this transition from a university practice that had almost no vascular surgery and cardiovascular was, you know, doing the breadth of vascular disease to now an area that is there's a plethora of vascular surgery as well as hematology. So I'm lucky, and I think the others on the on the call are lucky because we're in places where they know what vascular medicine is. So the, the distinctions are well um, elucidated. For example, I'm now in a group of six vascular surgeons who have had a vascular medicine physician with them for more than 10 to 20 years. Yeah. And so those distinctions have already been made. I think where the challenge is 
is um, in areas like Ragu says, outside of university settings where they're not as familiar. So for example, vascular surgeons rotate with us from UNC and we teach them vascular medicine, we teach them vascular lab interpretation, you know, the medical part of it, uh, DVT care, pulmonary embolism, lytic therapy, all those things we teach the vascular surgery. So they're more than happy for us to um, have time with them. So, so I think it really does depend on where you're situated. If you've had longstanding vascular medicine, it, those distinctions, and it works very well with vascular surgery, I would say. But if you're outside of that, I think that's where the, the overlap is a little more challenging. Yeah, and I think there's an overlap, as not an overlap, there's a challenge. And, and Tom, I'd like you to talk to this. Uh, recently, I, I did an interview with, with Frank Veith, and he was very adamant that vascular surgery has done a very poor job, job in marketing itself, not to, not to doctors, but to the public. And Tom, could you address, do you think the public understands, or do you think there's, you guys need to do a little better job as to um, marketing your specialty that the public realizes how you can help them with the with complex diseases that that overlap in so many different ways that you need a vascular medicine first. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. You know, the, um, uh, the vascular surgeons always do sort of sort of uh, give the impression that they're they're uh, you know lost out there in the in the public and that people you know think they're cardiologists who do veins or something. That's always the 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 thing that you hear. With vascular medicine, I, I I don't know that at this point, you know, I've seen our big issues as being one of needing to market ourselves to the public. It's really still been more marketing ourselves to our colleagues, you know, letting our colleagues uh, in medicine understand uh what it is that we do because we there are there is such a broad spectrum of things that people do we have people that are interventionalists we have people that are purely cognitive and uh the cognitive people cover tremendous fields they cover everything from wound care to as ragu said lymphedema treatment uh, uh, thrombosis you know thrombosis work is the number one biggest thing that i do it's a broad it's a broad uh, area right now and um, um i think the biggest task has been getting our colleagues to understand you know when we can help them yeah no i i i do agree with that as as well because you know vascular medicine even though you've been around for so long it's, you're just beginning to come onto the radar screen of a lot of a lot of other people, and they need to understand you're not competing with them, you're helping them, meaning other internists and stuff like, like that. Let's change gears a little bit. Um, let me ask you, uh, Raghu, what, what one or two disease states in the vein side of things do you think we're doing a relatively poor job at at this moment in time? And we need to, to figure out a better way to manage those disease states. So, you know, I think, yeah, I, I think in the vein world, I think, you know, assessment of um, anyone presenting uh, with either venous insufficiency or uh, post-traumatic syndrome, you know, how do we optimize the care for those patients um, is the key. Uh, I think, you know, uh, with the um, explosion of uh, for-profit 
OBLs and that kind of stuff. Uh, not there. There are several of my friends, you know, who do ethical practice um, and do the right thing. But then there are people I've seen um, just before COVID ended uh, a patient with bilateral iliac vein stents into the IVC all the way up and right ventricular systolic pressure was 45. Um, so, uh, he, you know, and, and he was, he actually had secondary lymphedema also. And at the OBL, he was told that, you know, the, it, this might help lymphedema. So, um, you know, I think the biggest piece we have, I know AVF and, you know, other societies are also looking um, at appropriateness criteria. You and I have talked about it several times too, but I think that is the most important, um, you know, uh, practice that needs curbed uh, um, and uh, have better oversight uh, on, on I, I believe, because pretty, I mean, it, there's already been a MedCAC um, mm -hmm. uh, panel um, but two years ago now almost, um, uh, and I, we will be under scrutiny as a specialty for that. And, you know, that type of practice, especially with more and more venous stents getting on label, it's becoming more and more, uh, you know, a pattern that needs to be curbed. Yeah, no, I think overuse or abuse is definitely a, a, a big issue. I wanted to talk a little bit more about disease states itself. And Yogan, you're, you're very much into uh, the research, the basic science, as Tom already said. What, what is the hot Venus research from a basic science viewpoint at this time? Where do think people are looking at? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there are quite a few. One is an area of understanding why people get venous insufficiency to begin with. And so there's some genetic studies that suggest that height may be a factor, at least genetic genes associated with height may be a factor, which confirms some historical data. The The other part really that, that we've been most interested which in- Which is kind of funny. Sorry to interrupt because I don't think that's going to affect anyone on this panel. <laughs> <laughs> I know. This the is great thing cool. is you can't tell on a on a video on a video podcast, right? I know. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I had to <laughs> say. Mean? I, I'm standing up here. I'm actually not sitting in a chair. That's how short I am. <laughs> but, but but understanding but understanding how inflammation interacts with uh, with vascular disease. And, uh, and in particular contributes to venous disease, I think is the area that really um, needs to move forward and understanding how inflammation can lead to, how, how stretching and distension of veins that are, that are, that are hypertensive can lead to uh, biochemical changes in the vessel wall and create more inflammation. Uh, for example, we know that, uh, that, that, that varicose veins um, or venous hypertension in general can cause a lot of local tissue inflammation. And what that might have in terms of long-term implications, whether it be for thrombosis or uh, vein wall fibrosis and stiffening, those are very different uh, uh, endpoints, but they, but they are things that may originate from the same place. So understanding how that, uh, how, how that may exist as an entity by itself. And then I think the second part really is understanding how uh, how inflammatory diseases and inflammatory disease risk factors can then predispose to either uh, venous thrombosis or, or. Yeah, no, I, and I think, you know, we're, we're, um, we have a very good example of that now we just spoke about with inflammatory disease with, with the whole COVID issue and the, uh, the hypercoagulability. It's, it's, it's clear. I mean, you don't, you know, you don't have to be a vascular medicine person to realize the, the connection between that. So, yeah, yeah that's, that, 
That's that's I think that's that's really important. Um, you know, we in Southeast Michigan have unfortunately seen a lot of a lot of cases of as you have in New York. And yeah. um, the, the, the data is pretty clear that these that these viruses can actually infect venous endothelium um, and that it can it can create inflammation that then leads to thrombosis. And so uh, I, I think the, the world of the vein specialists is going to start uh, getting bigger and bigger um, with these inflammatory diseases, and whether that's on the medical or procedural side. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right about that. Uh, Tom. Is oh, he, I could comment. Is he is he on the right track here? Um, yeah. Anything yeah. else you might consider that that uh, we should be looking at from the, the disease viewpoint? Yeah, absolutely. And and again, it I don't mean to be self-serving. Uh, this is my area of interest in research. But one area we do a bad job in, and a place where we need to do more research is with venous testing. And I can be very specific here. It's with venous physiological testing. If you think about it, this is one of the biggest gaps we have, and it's something we don't have in the arterial world. Steve, we're constantly seeing incompetent superficial veins that we want to obliterate because we think they'll improve swelling, but we don't have you know, good ways of measuring you know, the impact of that reflux. How about with our May-Thurner syndrome, where, you know, we, we can look at percent stenoses and anatomical things using IVIS and other measures, but is that really producing a hemodynamically significant effect that we're going to be able to, to fix? This lack of, of knowledge and area, uh, knowledge uh, uh, in the testing area is, I think, the biggest single hurdle that clinical venous practice faces today. So again, I'm probably going to go out at the end of my career here just working on this uh, nonstop. No, I, th I think that that is a fantastic point because, you know, at the various meetings, we make the point, don't treat the image. We all realize the image doesn't tell us about the patient. We say treat the patient, and then we try some way to, to see how we can treat that patient, what lesions are affecting their venous hypertension or not. But like you point out, we don't have a number that can predict one way or the other, is this mm -hmm. gonna help this person or not help this person? Suman, have you, I, you know, Tom is- Yeah, and, and I've also, you know, uh, worked on this and as, as Tom brought air plasmathography into the practice for this very reason, because it was the closest physiological measure we had in terms of out, venous outflow, but, that and what Yogan has said in terms of inflammation, the, the clinical gap that I see that we're just starting to move the ball is really in venous inflammation and either compression, which we know decreases mm -hmm. venous inflammation, but also the use of medicines, including herbal products. And uh, you may know that Susan Kahn has started a, a Canadian Institutes of Health trial on the use of flavonoids to decrease pain and swelling, the Muffin PTS trial. Uh, for those with post-thrombotic syndrome. So there's a whole group of, you know, we get these questions about horse chestnut seed extract and flavonoids and that, medical therapies. And as the, you know, the stents will come back to center, we're sort of at the one end of the pendulum. It's going to be, again, every time, medical therapy, exercise, medicine, compression, lifestyle that ultimately, um, you know, shows equal improvement. And, and I think... That's that inflammatory mechanism that Yogan you're talking about, but also the physiological 
uh, outcomes that we don't have that Tom is talking about. And, you know, some of us are using AirPleth, but there really is no marker of how volume affects uh, skin disease. No, I, I agree. We, we've got to get a little bit better on the physiological thing. You know, I, uh, as a surgical resident, I got involved with vein disease, doing axillary valve transplants up in, in Buffalo with, with Tahari, who was the first one to do it. And we, at that point, we, every single patient got a direct ambulatory venous pressure measurement by sticking a needle into the, the veins in their foot. And Tom, you've, you've been around doing that as well. Yeah. And as direct as that was, still, I would say to you, I'm not sure that if we could do that in every patient now would s still give us the answers that, no. that we, you know, it's, it's just not, it, it's, it's just not going to, going to do it. Um, but Suman, what, what you said, and I want you to, to comment on this, isn't it always the case with almost any disease that we do a procedure on a patient that the non-procedural component is as important or more important, and they work together in concert. You know, you could do a coronary bypass, a stent, or whatever. You still need all the medicine to help right. out. And I think you're right. In venous disease, we've looked at it as either you do a procedure or you give them medicine. And we have not gotten that um, melding of those two things together to maximize the results for the venous patient. So, Raghu, tell me, can you, do you have a program? Do you have some idea how we can better put it all together? Yeah, you're right. I mean, for example, you know, uh, if somebody has a uh, uh, diabetic uh, uh, foot ulcer, right? I mean, uh, and you intervene below the knee and, you know, you go to the extent of venous arterialization or whatever, but unless you offload that in a diabetic wound, you know, it's, and, and take care of the underlying diabetes, that's not going to heal. The same thing, you know, uh, applies for, you know, venous disease, just like I alluded to earlier, the overlap syndromes, you know, the phlebolymphedema, the lipolymphedema, the phlebolipolymphedema, you know, all of these things. And, and now you add cardiophlebolipolymphedema if they had, if they have the venous insufficiency. So, uh, uh, and uh, central venous pressure. So, I, I believe that um, uh, there, uh, all of those things, like we started out our conversation um, uh, of how the vascular medicine folks can help the venous specialists. I think, you know, that's what uh, you're bringing back here. That you know, those are the type of things we all need to think about because the veins, the plumbing system that doesn't work independently, right? I mean, it's it's pressurized, it's it's influence, you know, it's third spacing, it's inflammation and all of those type of things. So um, I, I think uh, um, uh, it, it's not just this venous disease, just like we talk about, you know, now I'm done with intervention for CLI. What do I next is one of my one of the lectures I gave last year. So the same thing works with Artur uh, with venous disease, too. I mean, the venous ulcer is not going to heal unless, you know, you take care of the underlying malnutrition, you know, underlying, you know, obesity issues and, you know, calf pump dysfunction issues, all of those things. Steve, the paradigm is changing in research, and, and you all know this for the C-TRAC trial, and even in our arterial PAD trials, now we're randomizing to best medical therapy or procedure plus best medical therapy. And I think yeah. that's what you're getting at yeah, is exactly. that, yes. you know, it's not one or the other in the trials that we're seeing both in PAD yeah. intervention, plus for example, in the Voyager yeah. trial, 
rivaroxaban, you know, that is part of your procedural arm now is best medical therapy. Yeah. And so I think you're going to see that paradigm, uh, you know, yeah. change as we get into these other trials. For example, for vein disease, it's going to be best compression, you know, for wounds plus, you know, early ablation versus uh, wound care and compression. So I, I believe that paradigm is starting to change a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, just like the CLI is, you know, looking at optical, uh, I'm sorry, optical, optimal medical therapy, PAD, CREST 2, CREST 3, you know, all of those are, again, looking at, you know, carotid stenosis, med, surgical intervention versus best medical therapy. I totally agree. We still don't know what role the DOACs have um, on post-thrombotic syndrome, uh, uh, you know, prevalence, uh, Yogan might be able to, you know, give us some insight into that. Uh, you know, there are older studies where the the development of post-thrombotic tissue in the veins may be associated with fluctuations in the INRs. Uh, now that we don't have that with the DOACs, is that a different situation? Uh, Steve, like you said, when you when you do a coronary intervention. Um, you know, you don't expect it to stop there. You have to take your ACE inhibitors. You have to take your, you know, antiplatelet therapy, your blood pressure, your beta blockers and stuff like that. But if you look at any of the venous stent trials, Steve, is there a single trial that including the C-tract or A-tract that mandates a certain medical therapy? No. No, absolutely not. And, and, that's and, and, and that's not acceptable, you know, in 2020. So, no, is, um, wait, I'm saying this is where you guys can help, um, you know, to, to design trials that are going to, to add that other component so that we can see, you know, what's, what's best. We, yes, we do need some standardization. I want to ask Yogan something, and we're going to finish up about five, six minutes. Yogan, um, if you could forget about, you know, just, just fantasize, um, not about about medicine, just fantasize. <laughs> and if you could come up with a medicine, a pill or something that you think almost every patient with advanced venous disease would take, what would be that type of medication? Yeah, I think that's a really difficult question because the heterogeneity of venous diseases is, is, is telling that the treatments are going to be different for each of these. Um, some patients would benefit from an antifibrotic. Some would benefit from something that's more pro-motility um, in the venous system. And some might benefit from an anti-inflammatory and an anticoagulant. So I, I don't know if there's a single pill. And I think it really reflects the, the diversity of patients that we see, um, for which we really end up needing to needing to look at each patient individually, um, which is why a, a vascular medicine and vascular surgeon specialist would partner together on this like treating the underlying sleep apnea. I may not need a pill at all. Um, right. And weight loss is, 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 is one of the great uh, underutilized treatments in venous disease. Um, and, and for those, I think we need, we need partnerships like this. So Steve, I, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm dancing around the question here, but I, I, think, that, I think that the patients are diverse and, and each one ends up needing to be looked at very specifically for treatments that could be tailored to them. Um, I think for the for the patients with um, you know uh, complex post uh, post thrombotic syndrome, the anti-inflammatory anticoagulants because the horse is already out of the barn, the anti-inflammatory anti and anticoagulant uh, treatments end up uh, um, taking sort of a higher uh, a higher stage. All right, let me let me finish up with one last thought I, uh, uh, that I'd like you guys to comment upon. You know, I think we have spent the last 
15 to 20 years in, in Venus disease, what I call the modern era once we, we began endovenusation, uh, destroying things, destroying varicosities, destroying incompetent saphenous veins. Um, you get it, sclerosing things. I think we need to move, if we can, to an idea of fixing venous disease. And when I mean fixing, meaning beginning to, to get the patient back to their normal or semi-normal venous function. So in other words, instead of like, it's look, it's easier to rip something out, it's easier to burn something than it is to get a valve to, to, to improve or, or wherever. You guys have any thoughts on this at all as to A, how we might come about doing this, even from a medical viewpoint? You already mentioned, Suman, about the, the venotonics, for instance, things like that. Um, I think we should move into the era of, of fixing now rather than just destroying. Tom. So something like a, something like a, um, like a, an, an endo, a new endovenous valve. Well, that's one thing. That's for the deep system. Yeah, of course. And we're working on that, that now, and we do have examples already where we are working a little bit more in fixing, for instance, stenting. Shiva and asphalt. Shiva and asphalt. Yes. Stenting a, a, you know, thrombotic, a post-thrombotic vein that you can reopen. You're trying to get, you know, get back to semi-normal and stuff. But I think we should take that, that concept a little bit further and stop, again, doing what we've been doing for, well, for hundreds of years. We were destroying veins manually, and now we destroy it endovascular-wise. Um, Tom, you have any thoughts on this? Well, your point uh, about the valve is that, you know, the valves are really the holy grail of venous disease where we, we have a plethora of veins. We have exactly the right number of arteries, but we got way more veins than we need, uh, you know, coming back from any place. So we can always afford to get rid of some. And, you know, if you do wind up with venous obstruction, we're pretty good at opening those things. The real difference, you know, between the arteria and the venous system is those, you know, those darn valves. And, um, you know, until we can figure out whether we can replace those uh, or fix them and whether it does any good, because it's not a guarantee that actually restoring large, you know, uh, vein valvular competency is going to achieve what we think it is. But, but that's really going to be the the next big frontier. Figure out, uh, you know, how to put new valves in. Yeah, Steve, Anybody? I think I think you know, uh, Yogan alluded to in his earlier answer. Uh, venous disease is so heterogeneous and, you know, just like Tom said earlier, we don't know which one is the bigger culprit to go after in each particular patient, even in whether it's in physiology, meaning is the superficial system contributing to the patient's symptoms or the obstruction in the deep or the valvular dysfunction in the infrainguinal areas. We don't know, you know, all the different issues that uh, Yogan mentioned, whether it's motility, inflammation, whether it's obstruction, what is wrong with this? So I think, you know, when you think about designing a clinical trial to test these things, it is just so difficult to find and, you know, one, you know, cure. Uh, we always uh, have said, Steve, you and I talk about there is no cure for venous disease. So I totally agree with you that fixing a problem so that the patients 
could lead uh, a relatively normal life and postpone all the severe complications, you know, as much as possible until something else gets them like everyone else is gotten, right? So um, it's probably the best way to do, but I don't know what the answer to that is. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't think we're going to come up with the answers on the last in the last next forty minutes. Forty minutes that we spoke here. Suman, you have something you want to say? Yeah, and I I feel obligated as the the woman on this to put in a plug for women's health. I mean, one we all see a majority of women in our bank practices, and yet mm-hmm. there's very little education or even study in pre anapartum and postpartum women. We know they make up a lot of our May Thurner obstruction. And we know that they're the ones that often develop severe vein disease at an early age, and yet there is no counseling at all. And I've made this the focus of my uh, practice. And I think uh, this is an area that is completely wide open in ter- for the vein specialist in order to prevent both superficial and deep venous disease. And, um, you know, I think we can back it up and not wait till it needs fixing, do more education and prevention. Um, about, uh, you know, superficial vein disease, postpartum thrombosis, et cetera. Uh, you know, that's, that's been a focus of my career. And I think, you know, we could incorporate that into all, every vein specialist. Yeah, I think these are, these are great points. And this, you know, this brings out what I've always secretly told. Now I will tell you in public that I've always said that the vascular medicine people are the smartest people in the room. So um, you guys uh, have have helped us with the with this podcast, showing everybody. I mean, my takeaway here is is a physiologic testing we're really not that good at, and we really need better physiologic testing to identify, like you guys said, what's going to help the patient and what's not going to help the patient. Uh, Yogan, your point about the uh, you know basic science, the inflammatory aspect is is uh, well well taken. Uh, Saman, of course, uh, women make up the great majority, and I think you're right. We have missing the boat on on that as well. And then um, Raghu, you know, you dealing with Society of Vascular Medicine, being the president and everything else, and uh, incorporating main specialists into vascular medicine is just going to help everybody take the patients uh, better care of them uh, in a more cohesive way. And I think people should take that away. The vascular medicine uh, doctor should be your friend. And if you don't have a friend who's a vascular medicine doctor, make a friend who's a vascular medicine doctor. But I want to thank you guys, well, for you, who are my friend, uh, for being part of this. I think you've really educated us a lot. So thanks a lot. We hope you enjoyed today's Vein Podcast in association with Radcliffe Vascular. We aim to bring you important topics from the vein world, either topics that we ourselves feel are important or you, our listeners, feel are important. So review us on your favorite podcast app or send your thoughts, comments, and questions to podcast at Radcliffe with an E-group.com. That's podcast at Radcliffe-group.com. You could also register to access newsletters, videos, and peer-reviewed journal articles. Thank you. Glad you listened. This is Dr. Steve Elias, and we'll see you on the next Bain podcast. Bain podcast.